This information is subject to a disclaimer at the end of this podcast. Please ensure that you listen to the disclaimer and go to www.ubs.com for further information about UBS. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning into UBS Global Research Pod Hub, a channel that shares insights from economists, strategists, and equity analysts on the pivotal questions and events shaping today's markets. My name is Aaron Captain. In this episode, we're going to be taking a high-level look at Phillips curves, what they are, how they're used, how useful they are in forecasting inflation in this current pandemic. I'm joined by Alan Deppmeister, who spent a long time at the Federal Reserve, where he was um, head of the wages and prices section, and uh, he knows more than anyone else at UBS about inflation. So welcome, uh, Alan. Let's get straight into it. So maybe just the, the first basic question is, how do central banks and how do we actually forecast inflation? Yeah, thank you, Aaron. So the basic idea is that prices are set by supply and demand. So central banks tend to use a Phillips curve. The Phillips curve is a simple relationship that relates changes in inflation to some measure of resource utilization, usually the unemployment rate or the output gap, which is the difference in the level of output from an estimated potential output. So uh, beyond that very simple, you know, inflation is caused by changes in resource utilization, usually the better Phillips curves include some additional driving variables, such as energy prices, oil prices, uh, exchange rate import prices, commodity prices, some other things to kind of get some more of these supply shock effects. So we look at a bunch of different Phillips curves because whenever you're doing just a simple equation, one of them doesn't usually fit that well. You want a, a number of different takes and you try to judgmentally aggregate them and say, what's looking, been fitting well recently? What time periods should be we, we be looking at? And how do we think the current environment lining up to what these Phillips curves do? And, and over that, you kind of judgmentally form a view of what you think inflation is going to be doing. All right. And uh, so how good are they at actually predicting the future? So, um, you know, there's this conventional wisdom now that these curves have gotten very flat, that um, it's actually very difficult to generate inflation out of, um, you know, tighter labor markets. Um, and that's been the case now for a few decades. So, you know, does that mean that progressively they are actually explaining less and less of the variance that we see in inflation? Yeah, to be honest, Philip cur curves are not a great measure or a great forecasting device for trying to predict inflation one year ahead of time. They were originally designed as kind of a business cycle. And over the course of the business cycle, they explain a fair amount of the movement in inflation. But on kind of a year ahead of time, they only explain a very small fraction. When we've looked at it, we found um, across countries, on average, inflation uh, Phillips curves only explain, or at least changes in the output gap, changes in the unemployment rate, only explain about 15% of the variation of year-over-year uh, -year inflation. So not a lot. Standard errors on Phillips curves, even ones that include the, the Federal Reserve's own Phillips curves that are some of the best out there that include those energy prices, import prices, et cetera, those still have standard errors on the order of half a percentage point. So that means that uh, about 10% of the time, it's gonna be more than 80 basis points off. 
half the time, it's going to be more than 30 basis points off. These are pretty large standard errors around these, but that's the state of inflation forecasting right now. And, you know, the economy generally operates still pretty well with inflation at 1% as it does at 3%. So small movements in inflation, um, half a percentage point, maybe even up to a percentage point, are a major concern to financial markets. And they are a concern to the, the central banks as well. But in general, movements in inflation that we have been seeing over, say, the last 20, 25 years since the late 90s have been fairly small, and they've been much, much smaller than what we saw in those earlier periods. Okay, so let me get this straight. So the central forecasting framework or modeling framework used by central banks explains only 15% of the variation in inflation, or is that just one of the components? In other words, what, what is the other 85%? Yeah, so... That 15% is the movements in the output gap, movement in the unemployment rate. Actually, movements in oil prices tend to explain much more than movements in resource utilization. Generally, what central banks or what we do at UBS relies very heavily on movements in the futures curve. And maybe you adjust those movements in the futures curve for how you expect the economy will move differently from what, what consensus is. But, you know, oil's uh, extremely volatile and really moves around headline inflation. Doesn't move around core inflation that much, but moves around headline inflation pretty dramatically. Another thing that moves things around almost as much as the output gap is exchange rates. Uh, exchange rates are less important in the US where we're a large country. And so a lot of production is domestic demand and domestic production, but it's very, they're very important in smaller countries. And those exchange rate movements are extremely hard to forecast. Okay, so basically, you know, we have something that is relatively stable but slow moving, but doesn't really explain a lot of the inflation variance. And then you've got a bunch of other volatile things like exchange rates and oil. So, is there really nothing better? At this point, it, it's not really clear if there's anything better. You use a few lags of inflation to help, but, you know, roughly 50% of the movements in inflation are either explained in these types of relationships by either lagged inflation or they're just completely unexplained. You know, the, as I mentioned, the standard errors around these are, are, are pretty large. Now, these equations, these simple Phillips curves, only explain, uh, a, only include a few kind of regressors, a few kind of explanatory variables. And what we often have to do, what somebody who's doing this you know, uh, as a profession, looking at not only a variety of different Phillips curves to try and get an idea, but also trying to layer on, okay, what is not included in the model? What might be moving around inflation? What might be moving around supply, those supply and demand effects that we don't have there? So for example, um, movements in minimum wages, those will likely drive up wage growth a little bit, that wage growth will likely eventually pass into the price inflation. So you have to make changes there. What about uh, the uh, um, supply and demand effects? Certainly um, uh, will be impacted by, you know, the lockdowns that we had. But, you know, lockdown isn't directly in a Phillips curve. You do have an, uh, uh, the output gap. But still, you have to be able to adjust that output gap, adjust that Phillips curve for things you think may not be in there. 
Okay, so so let's bring it to where we are today. So we have um, obviously a lot of volatility in, um, in in GDP, and so by extension, a lot of volatility in in Slack. So I could sort of imagine that at least in a year like this, um, you could actually you know generate quote unquote quite a bit of inflation through these type of uh, of models. So are they? central to um, the current inflation forecasting by either us or the Fed? So if we're thinking sort of, you know, one year out, how, how much of the improvement in inflation that we're forecasting is actually being generated by those type of supply-demand supply type of uh, relationships? Yeah. So we think there's a lot of risks out there to inflation, both on the upside and downside. And, and we um, probably more skewed to the upside. But those Phillips curve kind of affects that output gap is probably not the biggest risk um, from that. So what we have found, as you had suggested before, that that effect of the output gap or the unemployment rate on inflation has actually declined pretty significantly since the 70s and the 80s. As inflation has become more stable starting in the late 90s to now, that slope of the Phillips curve, which is the relationship between those output gap measures on inflation, that slope has declined pretty dramatically. So now, even if we can move up pretty strongly above out, uh, potential output or the unemployment rate stays quite elevated, it's probably only going to have a fairly minor effect. Now, in the current environment, one of the things that we're talking about on that is the stimulus the huge stimulus that we um, was passed recently, $1.9 trillion. So how much is that going to move up output? And then how much will that change in output affect inflation? Let's put some numbers on that. So, so we have, I think for this year, and of course everyone has a different forecast, but, but let's say roughly our, our US growth forecast is about 8% Q4 over Q4. And then we have, you know, potential growth is maybe about two, so we're we're six percentage points above potential. So how much does that roughly generate? So if it was moving all that, we've tended to see an output gap would have anywhere from roughly five to maybe a little bit more than ten um, uh, basis points per percentage of output on inflation. So it, one of these things that we find with the Phillips curve is that it really depends on the time period that you estimate them over. So if we go from the lower end of that range, you're talking on the order of 25 basis points um, of that, that swing in output on inflation. If you go toward the higher of the part of that range, you're talking you know, roughly double, maybe almost three times the amount of that on inflation. Given how low the inflation rate currently is, that's still suggesting you're only going to move up to somewhere a little bit north of two and a quarter percent you're not going to see inflation really take off. And so maybe then uh, just a related question, just to clarify a little bit how this works. So, so once you've, you've done that, so let's say you, you run above potential growth and uh, you're generating that inflation, call it those 30 basis points. What then happens the year after when growth settles back down to say a normal level? Do you then um, start to fall um, lower again in inflation or do you sort of, does that level stick? And is it, is it just the, sort of the increment every year that's, um, that moves you slightly up and down. In other words, you don't lose well, anything unless you, fall, unless you fall below your potential growth rate. Right. So with the stimulus, you have to 
continue to add that much stimulus every year in order to hold the level of output at the same level. So this is one thing that why we don't think that the current uh, recently passed stimulus, $1.9 trillion, is going to push up the level of output by $1.9 trillion. A huge amount of that stimulus was just continuing prior stimulus that was holding the current level of uh, current level of output. For example, the extended unemployment benefits, those were set to expire in March. Extending them to September is not really boosting the level of GDP above where it was. It's just holding the level of GDP at where it was before. So that it's you have to worry about kind of that removal of stimulus would have created an output gap on the other side and then led to a weakening of inflation. Okay, but so let me let me actually um, ask ask you this sort of in a different way. So are we effectively saying that you know that the traditional mechanism of you know um, creating a tight labor market, reabsorbing all the unemployed, generating some wage pressure, that's just not going to be the dominant mechanism as we recover from this pandemic? Yes, I do not think that is going to be the dominant mechanism. Where we see some of the bigger risks are in some of the the price normalization effects. So we saw inflation fall pretty dramatically, specifically in a handful of categories, energy prices being one of them, gasoline prices. Those have moved back to pretty much pre-pandemic levels. But we saw apparel prices, lodging away from home, airfares, all of those fall significantly during the recession. Air apparel started to move back, but it's still a number of percentage points below where it was pre-pandemic. Lodging away from home, airfares are still well more than 10. uh, Airfares are almost 25% below where they were pre-pandemic. So it's kind of the movement of those goods back to their more pre-pandemic levels that's going to push things up. And those are effectively just sort of perceived to be transient or, or, or one-off, you know, one-off type developments that don't repeat, and therefore they're not, you know, perceived to be be part of sort of the, the normal supply-demand relationship. Because obviously there is a sort of um, a supply constraint element to it. So it's, I'm just sort of curious why that would not be viewed as part of the part of sort of the Phillips curve type of, uh, of framework. Right. So. In many cases, you're right. Supply has been uh, fallen on those. We think supply will come back, but we don't think demand is going to continue to surge every year beyond that. Demand has fallen pretty dramatically during the um, pandemic, and we think it's going to come back to its its pre-pandemic level over time. It's going to take a little bit of time, and maybe initially that demand is going to go above the pre-pandemic level, but you know, you can't go out to eat. You're not going to be going out to eat for dinner, like stacking dinners on top of each other where you're going out uh, three times a night for the same dinner. Or you're you may uh, uh, you're not going to be getting haircuts now going from usually once every, say, four or five weeks to now starting to get them weekly to make up for that lost demand. You're just going to probably go back to your pre-pandemic levels so that you're not going to get too much of a of a surge there. Okay, and and that's really where the action is going to be. Um, okay, th- look, this is. Um, I think we'll probably wrap it up there. As I was telling you before we spoke, my, my daughter has been mocking me for talking about flat Phillips curves on TV, and it's now a running joke in my household. But hopefully, this podcast will uh, will educate her. She's seven. We may not have quite succeeded, but um, <laughs> uh, it may, may it may help a little bit. 
Thank you very much for visiting the, um, the UBS Research uh, Pod Hub. Um, that was an introduction and an overview to um, Phillips Curves. Um, thanks, Alan, for, for joining us. And, and please uh, tune in again for more investment insights. Thanks. This content has been prepared by UBS AG, its subsidiaries and or affiliates, and is purely informational in nature. It is not investment research and does not contain an investment recommendation nor investment or professional advice. It is not an offer or solicitation to engage in any investment activity, and you should seek your own financial, tax, and legal advice before engaging in any such activity. UBS has no responsibility to you in relation to this content. It has no regard to your personal circumstances or investment objectives, and receiving it does not imply any form of client relationship with UBS for any legal, regulatory, or tax purpose. This content is not intended for distribution into any jurisdiction where to do so would be contrary to law or regulation. UBS does not accept any liability over the content of such material or reliance upon any information contained herein. The views and opinions expressed by any guest speaker or third party are not those of UBS. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over any such views and opinions expressed by such persons. This content is the valuable intellectual property of UBS, and UBS specifically prohibits the redistribution of it in whole or in part without its prior written permission. Copyright UBS 2021. The key symbol and UBS are among the registered and unregistered trademarks of UBS, all rights reserved.